conversation. Tēnā koutou katoa, ko pēkumi mātai evenings tōku unua. Nō Aotearoa hau, i wainga nui te moana nui a kiua. Ko Ngāti Kuri te iwi, ko Poho Tiare te hapu, ko Pārenga Renga te moana, ko Kaharoa Anake te maunga. Ko tai mai o ko Tupuna Marungi te waka o Kurahaupo, ko Taku Tino Tupuna ko Raharuhi Raharuhi. Nō reira, ko tēnei he uri nō muri whenua, mihi ana ki a koutou, ngā tangata whenua o te ao. Kia ora everybody, my name is Bethany Marta Edmonds. I live and descend from Aotearoa, aka New Zealand, in the middle of the South Pacific Ocean. And I descend from the people of Ngāti Kuri, that's my tribe, and my hapu, or my sub-tribe is Pohotiari. And we talk about our ancestors arriving on the great waka of Kurahaupo and um, arriving to the far, far north of Aotearoa, so the very top, um, the tip of the of the land. So um, thank you, Ginger, for inviting me to speak with everybody and um, just want to say kia ora and greetings to all of my extended friends and family out there in the wider world um, in the Indigenous peoples of this beautiful world that we live in. Kia ora koutou katoa. What kind of art do you focus on in your life right now? I always, um, I, I'm a, I guess I'm a multidisciplinary artist, but my two main areas are, um, I was taught traditionally um, how to weave um, in the ways of our ancestors, and I'm also a hip-hop lyricist. So um, two very different worlds, but um, sort of traverse between those spaces. Um, and I also... Um, my main kind of creative practice at the moment is working with rangatahi or young people. Um, I work in the museum, so I'm creating opportunities for them to explore themselves and their identity within um, a museum space and drawing on the taonga or the treasures of their ancestors. Um, so although I'm not as active as I would like to be in my own personal art creation, I um, live my life creatively and use creative philosophies with everything that I do. So. It's kind of where I'm at right now. <laughs> Sweet. When did you uh, first take weaving into your life? I think I was about 12 years old when I first was really um, taken by Raranga. Um, my mum tells a story of me uh, watching some aunties weave and then I went and harvested some harakeke and wove a backpack and she was like, how did you do that? And I said, oh, well, I just kind of watched and looked at another example and worked out how to do it and from there I as I got older started to explore it a little bit more and spent um, some time with my grandfather's older sister who was also a weaver and so I made quite a lot of effort to go and spend time with her um, and then when I was about 21 I think 20 I was privileged enough to um have the opportunity to work with one of our fire or our aunties from the area that I'm from. Um, her name was Nikki Lawrence. She was from Te Rarua, one of the neighbouring tribes to mine. And um, she taught us all of the traditional techniques that are required for cloak weaving and um, including fibre extraction and traditional dyeing using um, native tree barks, um, 
harvesting kutsa, which is a reed that grows underwater in the lake. Um, and we did that in a marae-based situation. So um, a marae is our, our meeting houses. So every um, tribe has their own um, community meeting space. And uh, so we were, yeah, we spent um, a period of just over two months, um, all day, every day, working in the nice place, living and eating and working together and learning um, those traditions. So it was pretty life-changing point of my life. Um, something that I thought, oh yeah, this sounds like fun. And then by the end of it, kind of, and as I get older, I realize the responsibility of what I'd learned through that process. Um, it went from being something fun that is now kind of the foundation of my life, I guess, and it's been a huge part of my life. What do you feel like that responsibility is? I mean, it's it's a huge part of your tradition, and um, how does that make you feel? Um, I feel really honoured that I had the opportunity to learn in that way, um, and I guess the responsibility comes from... Um, you know, only few people are privileged to be taught these skills and have the ability to continue these skills. And so therefore it's my responsibility to pass on these skills so that um, other people learn and engage in it and that, that um, mahi or that type of work um, doesn't cease to exist. Mm. Um, and so it's not just about making something, but it's continuing knowledge that is contained within the fibres that we work with. So there's a whole lot of associated knowledge that goes with just the physical work. And, um, yeah. What is the, what is the process? Like, how does it make you, how does it make you feel the process of the weaving and the collecting, like a personal perspective on it? Yeah. Um, it's funny cause I haven't woven much recently. And, um, so I, I'm kind of yearn for that mahi and that connection to the whenua, to the earth. Um, I always, as a weaver, you're really conscious of the materials that you're working with. Um, when Before we start to do, specifically, I mean, particularly with these, with big, important projects, we always um, pay homage to the ancestors and to the um, deities or the atua that are related to that particular um, work. Um, Tani Mahuta is the uh, atua or the, the guardian of our forest and our um, plant life. So um, we talk about whakapapa, which is our genealogy and our ancestry, which connects us to our natural environment. And it connects us to Tani Mahuta and it connects us to Tangaroa, the um, god of the ocean. And so being conscious and active as descendants in relations to our environment, we have to be um, respectful of, of that space. Mm. And so when you're thinking about harvesting materials, you're asking for permission to to harvest from your ancestor. And therefore, um, if you, you know, the intention that you have when you start that work is what follows through in the completion of the, of the work. Um, and so, yeah, just those kind of I, thoughts of sustainability and guardianship and the way that we harvest is so that it, um, the, 
plant will continue to live and thrive rather than being um, damaging to the plant. So um, there's a, a kaitiakitanga is um, we refer to as guardianship or um, caretakers. And so um, as weavers, we're very aware of, of the natural environment in, in that role. And um, yeah, like the, the process, the preparation is the huge part of the work. And I feel like that um, that's one of the kind of things to apply in just everyday life as well as to, to really be conscious and enjoy the process. Um, and that the outcome and the product at the end is it's a beautiful thing, but it's not the entirety of the project. And um, I think as artists, we need to kind of remember that, you know, um, to really be in the process and that that's our fulfillment, that's our enjoyment space. And when we finish something at the end, well, that's when other people are invited into the, into the mahi. So, mm. yeah. How do you ground yourself in the process? What's your personal technique? <laughs> I don't know if there is actually a, a theory to my madness, a method to my madness. I think it's just, um, um, I mean, we all, you know, we all question ourselves and um, critique ourselves and are always the harshest critics, I think. As artists, um, as women, we're, we're very um, judgmental on ourselves. Um, so it's, and you you got to go through that, you know, the moon goes through phases and we go through phases and we've got to just kind of roll with it sometimes. And um, yeah, just being aware that you will come out of that um, heavy space and mm. it will, you know, tomorrow might you might wake up and it's a completely different feeling. And so kind of, Engaging that and not trying to push things when you're not, um, when they're not flowing. Because, yeah, I think some days you're on and it just happens, and other days it's just not going to happen. So <laughs> step away, um, yeah, step away. Um, yeah, so I mean, I think more as I get older, I find it easier to just kind of let let things be and then come back to them when the time is right instead mm. of trying to push it. Yeah. That's good advice. Was there a person in your life growing up, like maybe a auntie or a mother or a sister or somebody who really inspired you by their work ethic and their artistry that you have carried with you? I mean, um, obviously my mum's always been a huge inspiration for me. She's quite a free spirit. Um, she travels a lot and she... Um, is very open to kind of um, acknowledging that there's more to life than just the day-to-day -day and there's a big picture in the world. And um, so I guess I've taken on a lot of that. Um, my grandfather was someone that was is really um, important in my life and he, <clears throat> he passed when I was about 12, I think. 
and um, he was a carver, and so we we were always surrounded by his carvings and his artworks, basically. And um, I always, as a child, I went to a mainstream school, and I always wanted more access to my Māori tanga, um, to my language, to my culture. Um, and so any time we'd get a little glimmer of it at school, I was just kind of lap it up. And um, I remember a really vivid experience um, when when my grandfather passed away. And um, when we when we lose someone, we go through a three day um, hui mati or um, tangi process. So we'll bring the body to the marae to the um, meeting house that I mentioned earlier. And um, for a three day period, all of the fano or the family will come and pay respects to. Um, person into the family and um, in the last night um, everybody stays together and we celebrate the life of that person so we share stories and sing songs and um, it's it's a beautiful morning process because it takes you to the depths of sadness and then it brings you out the other side and you can kind of it, it kind of brings a feeling of completion mm-hmm. and you can farewell that person and be happy for them that they've they're going to the to be with their ancestors, to be with our ancestors. So um, there was a point at um, my grandfather's tangi and, you know, I was um, fully immersed and everybody was speaking Māori and it was, you know, it was quite an intense time of life. Um, and uh, after the tangi had happened, we went, um, I was at my uncle's house and I was watching TV and there was, I don't know, I think there was sports on or something like that, but all I could hear was te reo Māori, so our Māori language, and it sounded to me as though everybody was talking in Māori, and it was this kind of strange experience because clearly they weren't. Um, and I just, I think there was a real turning point for me that I knew I could speak Māori, even though I hadn't learnt or accessed that yet. There was a moment in time in my life that I was like, oh, yeah, okay. Can speak Māori, and um, yeah, maybe ten years later or something, I started to be able to fluently um, understand and, and conversate in Te Reo Māori. So, as a Maori person feel um, how do you take that responsibility into your art as like retaining your culture and like helping to not only preserve the historical aspect of being Maori but transcend it into like modern day culture yeah that's something that I kind of talk about all the time because I live in Auckland which is um, a big city in Aotearoa and my um, tribal homelands are, you know, about seven hours drive away from, from where I live. Um, I was born and raised here in Auckland and um, as a, you know, from a teenager and in my early and in my 20s, I made a lot of effort to spend as much time up north as I could and I lived in the north for um, almost 10 years and that was a huge... Um, definitely a grounding time of my life to really understand who I am and um, give me strength in my identity and 
because my grandfather's Māori, but the, um, my other ancestors come from different places. So I've got Basque heritage, I've got Scandinavian heritage, I've got Yugoslavian, I've got um, a bit of Scottish and some Irish in there. And so um, I've, I'm fairly fair-skinned and I'm part Māori. And so that's a really interesting space in itself is... Um, we, we have a whakatauki or a um, proverb that says um, he kākanoa hau irua mai rangiatia. So um, I'm a seed planted in rangiatia, which is um, as our ancestral homelands that we talk about. And so that's a way of, and like, you know, in the States, you've, there's a whole lot of stuff around blood quantums and, and that quantification of bloodlines. And um, we, we don't have that here in Aotearoa in the same kind of um, enforced way, I guess. Um, but more, it's if you if you know that you have um, connections and you understand your whakapapa links, then, then you're connected and you are Māori and you're able to be that. But, you know, I've spent lots of time in my life kind of grappling with that and trying to prove myself and be more Māori than I, you know, so that I can kind of stake that claim and... Um, it's a it's a internal struggle more than anything else, I think. Um, but I've come to a place now where I, that's just who I am, and I can't help but be that. <laughs> so there's no point trying to prove it or fight it because it, it just is what it is. And um, so I guess living in the city and working with young people and um, just kind of um, enabling others to access that part of themselves and be okay with it and be proud of it and be strong with it. And for me, it's about us, um, you know, our language is not only for ceremonial purpose. It's we can um, have conversations in it. We can crack jokes. We can have a laugh. We can just hang out. And so um, I'm fortunate enough to be surrounded by people that I can communicate with in that way. And, um, I guess that's where um, Kinaki, my band, kind of is a huge part of me being able to do that in an urban contemporary context is that we're six, um, uh, six Māori people. Uh, Ari, Ari, our bass player, is not Māori, but he is in his heart. <laughs> um, and understands, you know, we descend from the land and we're conscious and we're, um, we are on the same platform in terms of understanding our role in shaping our culture because we as contemporary people of our culture are responsible for shaping our culture how it is now and how it's going to be as we move into the future so um, making sure that we are conscious of that and and we um, do that in a positive means and um, that's how we use our musical music as a vehicle to do that stuff and we kind of infuse language and messages and philosophies into the way that we produce our music and so that people who are hearing it, um, it's kind of just sinks in whether they are aware of it or not, I guess. That's the beauty of music, right? <laughs> Subliminal message. Subliminal. That's the word I was looking for. Subliminal. Yeah. Subliminal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um so you work with youth. Can you talk about that and that experience with like 
um, you know, retaining the pride of your culture and like the language? What what exactly do you do with the youth um, in your work? So I um, am youth outreach programmer for the Auckland Museum. Um, so it's one of two of our major national museums here in Aotearoa. And um, my journey into the museum came about through my passion as a weaver and um, researching weaving collections. And then it kind of, that's another whole nother story. <laughs> but um, so um, what I do is um, I have sort of three principles that I like to work under and it's collections, connections, community. So founding our programs on the collections or the taonga, um, the treasures of our ancestors that are housed within the museum, making connections for our young people to themselves and making them relevant to them so that they're um, acknowledging the past but also making connections to how um, that relates to the everyday environment and then community is, is giving them the opportunities to translate that stuff back to their peers into their networks. And so um, often I'll have artist mentors come in and work with them so that the um, whether they're a um, graph artist or a spoken word poet or a um, screen printer or a comic artist or, um, you know, get them to work with the rangatahi or young people to um, look at the traditional stuff and then reinterpret it and, and um, so we did one recently that was with comic books and you know really asking them to identify as a group what are some of the key issues that face them in their lives and how can we address that through creative tools and creative means and then the work that they produce then gets presented out to as an exhibition or as a performance or as a YouTube clip or um, whatever it is. So, yeah, that's that's kind of my approach to things and making it relevant and, and I'm all about um, infusing hip-hop into the museum and how we can access hip-hop as a culture that transcends um, ethnic culture because hmm. I'm not only working with Māori young people, um, you know, my remit is 15 to 24 year olds in Auckland City. So it's huge. So whoever in that <laughs> yeah. age group. Yeah. And um, the other thing about the museum is that we are an encyclopedic museum. So we've got um, natural history collections, we've got human history collections, and we've got war memorial collections. So there's a whole lot of different areas as well. And I'm, you know, as we're heading into the centenary um stuff I'm I'm having to get my head around that which is not something that I'm very knowledgeable in as in as our history but um how do we make what our ancestors did in going away to the war how do what have we inherited from that and how and what are the things that um as young people that we need to kind of be aware of as a result of of people going away to the war and so it's an interesting space for me to work within. Um, but in terms of the, like the natural history collections, it's going back to that um, the stuff that I was talking about earlier around harvesting and sustainability and um, encouraging youth to be conscious and aware of their environment. And I think particularly in the city and with the digital age and all of that kind of stuff, it's really easy for Rangatahi to get 
quite sidetracked into the cyberspace and not really be conscious of the earth that they're walking on and the, um, the plants that surround them and that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, that's, that's some of the stuff I'm up for. <laughs> City, can you tell me about that experience and how it led you to where you are now? Yeah, um, so I went to high school and tried to get into the bilingual unit so um, so that I could be in, you know, speak, learning Te Reo Māori and all that kind of stuff, but they put me into the mainstream and so my access point then came in the art room and so I spent a lot of time um, exploring my culture through my art practice um, at high school then I left high school uh, before at the end of sixth form, so I just it wasn't it wasn't working for me. <laughs> so and I moved north, um, closer to where my uh, whakapapa comes from. And then I went to Northland Polytech and I did a Bachelor of Applied Arts, Māori Design and Technology um, at North Tech. And I had some amazing teachers, and that uh, you know that was around that time that I learned to speak. Um, language and um, really dug deep in exploring contemporary Māori art mm. and created some really solid networks as a result of that um, who, you know, I think we have our blood family and then we have our art family and we have our music family and we have all of those other connections that that um, create a sense of belonging by the people that you know. Um, so that was that was a really foundational point. When I completed that, I, in that time I'd done the wānanga, the weaving wānanga that I mentioned earlier. And I, um, since, you know, about 14, I think, for some reason I just had this desire I needed to live in New York City. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, being raised on hip-hop music and all that kind of stuff, I guess that had a huge part to play in it. And um, uh, so when I graduated with my degree, Google was all new and <laughs> accessible and um, so that was in 2000 that I graduated and um, so I kind of put in costume culture New York City into Google search <laughs> and um, this program came up um, costume at NYU and it was costume studies, a Master of Arts, Virtual Culture and Costume Studies and the kind of byline was um, exploring the role of costume within a culture. Mm. And I was like, ah, oh, you know, that ties directly into what I've been looking at because for my degree here I'd looked at um, personal adornment from the far north um, made in fibre. So mm. that was my kind of, that was my uh, degree thesis. And then it just felt like a nice fit. And so I found this programme and I was like, yeah, I'm going to do that. And then, um, you know, life went on and, carried on doing exhibitions and projects and um, another significant exhibition that I was involved in was um, in, hosted by the Basque government in Spain wow. and because my on my dad's side um, we have Basque 
lineage. And then it was a Māori exhibition, which is my mum's side. It was a really, another really poignant time in my life. And um, so I got to go and stay in Basque land for a month. And there was harakiki growing over there, or flax. So I harvested that and I sat there and wove. And women would come and talk to me in Uskera in their native tongue. And I'd sit there like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I can't speak Spanish, let alone Uskera. These are completely different languages. But so my wow. the easiest thing for me to do was speak Maori to them. <laughs> you know, what <laughs> we'll just see how we can communicate um new sign language, whatever. Um so that was a pretty amazing experience. And as part of that, um I went through England and uh, um a good friend of mine, mentor, colleague sister um rosanna raymond um she's been living in london for a long time and she introduced me to um the the right people at the british museum and got to go to the um view the cloak collections at the british museum and that was just it was huge like um sort of just pulling out drawers and these drawers and drawers and stacks and stacks and layers and layers, you know, 20 cloaks onto each other in a drawer, kind of just mind-blowing how much was over there in these amazing examples of of Māori weaving. And it got me all fired up and I need to bring these home and, or, you know, get all repatriation on it. And, um, <laughs> and then came home and was reignited and, Nikki, who had taught me when we when we completed our wānanga, she um, spoke about, um, she kind of allocated each of us a part of the tīnana or the body of, of the work, and one was the hands and one was the mouth and one was the heart, and she said to me, you're going to be the waiwai, you'll be the one, so that's the legs, and you'll be the one to take this work to the world. And I was like, oh yeah, cool, that sounds cool, you know, <laughs> awesome. And then and then, you know, six years later, being in the British Museum collections, or was it, anyway, I don't know what time frame it was, but sometime later, and I just kind of heard those words again, and I was like, oh, I'm here, okay, what am I, and then I remembered that program, and I and I sort of thought to myself, if I actually do want to make any real change or um, any moves towards this happening, then me sitting in my little studio in the far north is not necessarily gonna make that happen and um so I was like right I'm gonna do that program I'm gonna go to NYU and that's what I'm gonna do and um so I got my application forms together and I sent them away and I got accepted into the program and then I calculated how much it was gonna cost and then I went oh yeah (laughs) really how am I gonna do that (laughs) hundreds of thousands of dollars and so that was a whole nother kind of like, okay, what am I going to do? Um, so I started applying for scholarships and um, <clears throat> I got quite disheartened because it was huge, um, but just kind of needed to do it. And um, I applied for several different scholarships and um, got a Fulbright scholarship, which was a huge starting point. Um, and meant that I had to postpone my start date because they have a certain length of time that they um, operate their scholarships on, which meant that I had more time to start sourcing funding from other places. Um, Yeah, and so I managed to get the um, 
AMP award, which is um, a New Zealand-based um, scholarship award for outstanding New Zealanders. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so they they gave me um, they gave me the premium award, which was uh, forty thousand dollars, which was huge. Mm. Um, and at the award ceremony, they sort of made a statement that they saw that the trickle down effects of what I was doing was of national significance, and I was like, Shit, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, finally got the, um, you know, like I got sort of two-thirds, I guess, three-quarters of the money together before I left. And um, I was kind of adamant that I was going to go to the States and not owe America anything. I didn't want to be in debt from this project. So um, went to NYU, had a um, culture shock after culture shock after culture shock. Um, I bet. <laughs> And sort of spent the first semester, like, fluking my way through it, you know, fake it till you make it, and um, just trying to stay head above water and um, measure things in inches instead of centimetres and all of that kind of stuff, which was <laughs> a challenge when you're doing scale drawings and you've got to, you know, it's like, why is this not working? I'm dividing everything by 10. And then, oh, because you're not working in centimetres anymore. <laughs> So um, you know these those kind of just little things that you don't you don't really think about, and um, and also going from my earlier studies had been studio based, and then this was now heavily theoretical based. But what it did was, um, you know, um, within that program, I was doing um, textile history, the history of textiles, the history of fashion, and it was a very Western perspective. So it was an interesting space for me to kind of um, create understanding amongst my peers and my classmates and my tutors around what I've got to talk about is I've got, you know, there's a lot behind what I'm talking about and it's relevant and it's valid and it needs to be discussed in a, in a mainstream context. And so, yeah, that was challenging, but, you know, by the end of my studies, had my classmates coming and going, look at this magazine article. They said it's moko. It's not moko. That's just scribbles, you know. <laughs> so, so I kind of... Um, so you were teaching the, them too. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. And, um, and so it was an interesting process, like having supervisors that were able to advise me on the kind of academic process, but not necessarily on the content of what I was talking about. Um. And so my thesis was um, Hekakahu Māori, Māori Cloaks in American Museums, Conservation, Storage and Display. So what I did was um, worked in four different museum collections. So the American Museum of Natural History in New York, um, the Metropolitan Museum, um, the National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C., and the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem, Massachusetts, all of which have um, quite large cloak collections except for the Met only has one one cloak but that was an interesting comparison to be able to draw um, and again that's a whole other conversation around collecting methodologies and what's what's yeah. privileged and what's important and um, you know wooden sculptural things are far more important and significant than woven articles and mm, you know there's all this it, yeah it is it's very interesting um, early um, anthropology and um, collection methodologies but what that did was um, so yeah I was very much interested in the different ways that our cloaks were conserved um, and looked 
after in storage facilities. Um, and a lot of them were, you know, you pull a drawer out and you couldn't read from the object what it was. And particularly that have, you know, a woven mat. And it's this is a very fine, highly ornate garment that is to be worn by chiefs and leaders. And it's called a woven mat. So those kind of just the... Um, yeah, how did that make you feel? Like, how did you not have an emotional reaction to that to like well, I did <laughs> <laughs> I mean to like um I mean did it just fuel your fire for your studies or did it um what did it do for well, you well I mean it's it's like I can have my own personal reaction to things and I, I think it's interesting when you're in a um in an academic context and even in a professional context and you are of that culture and you are a maker of those things um, and to be objective is, is quite a challenge sometimes because you are you're related to that thing you know like I feel related to the cloaks that I'm looking at and so I, it's hard for me to detach from that and just look at it as an object and so that you know it's and it was an interesting process to um, to really hold fast to my cultural understanding when working in those spaces and not be deterred by the culture of the museum. And so when working, you know, when spending time in collections and being really clear with myself that I needed to do karakia or um, off give an offering or blessing to myself and to my ancestors before I went into that space to create a safe space for me to work in, but having a collections manager sort of watching what I was doing and you know and then down to wanting to talk to those objects and you know like communicate and then having someone watching and you know just that that's that strange awkward space of do I succumb to feeling awkward or do I just claim my space within with these with these objects and at first I was really uncomfortable with it but as I kind of did more and more looking and more and more time and research with the collections then I was able to be a bit more um, affirmative with what I knew and understood was the right thing to do mm. yeah so yeah huge learning process and I think too like being in the states there's definitely a, um, an awareness and a consciousness from museums working towards being a bit more um, proactive with Indigenous communities in America and local Indigenous communities in their, in their particular areas. So that's very part of the consciousness of where museums are heading. But being from outside of the United States and from a, a different Indigenous context and then trying to do things within, within the... It was just a strange space. Like we were kind of outside the realms of consideration which which is fair enough you know I mean there's so many indigenous people in the United States that need to be considered that that's a huge amount of work in itself and a huge amount of unpacking of all of the um, hurt in the in the you know the, there's a lot of um, heavy energy that surrounds museums and traversing through that is can be difficult sometimes even in my day-to-day -day job you know like I kind of forget because you just go to work and then sometimes it's really full on. You're like, that's right. I'm surrounded by all of these objects that all have their own histories that are connected to them. And that's, that's a huge 
thing, you know, it's pretty heavy sometimes. So yeah, really, really interesting. And, but, you know, I had some amazing opportunities to um, work with the collections and realign how they were housed in the storerooms and sort of make them more apparent as garments than, than they might have been in the past. And, you know, I've, I've just had some amazingly privileged opportunities wow. by being in the States. You know, like I went there all guns blazing about repatriation and then through the process you kind of understand that, um, I, I guess you relate it back to people like it, it, if you're strong in your Indigenous identity, it doesn't actually matter where you are in the world because you're still that, you still can retain that um, that mana or that that part of yourself. And, and I guess our um, Taonga are a little bit like that too, you know, that they have... They've gone out and they're creating a Māori presence around the world for us now. So it's not something that's just strictly located to Aotearoa that other people can't access. It's now something that has expanded out around the world. And whenever a Māori person is somewhere else out in the world, it's the same kind of effect. You know, people really respond to us and in, in, in our culture and um, just really thankful to be a descendant of that, I guess. We're building the foundation of cultural philosophy. We're making the connection, a chain of continuity. See, I gotta find a way to elevate consciousness high, look past reality. Let's talk about where you are now with your... Um your weaving of words, your your lyricism, your your music project, because that seems like it's super, like at the forefront right now for you of what you're doing. So yeah. tell me about this project. Um. So yeah, I mean, having uh, a full time job definitely cuts down the energy and time and brain space that's available for weaving because it's a very um it's a it's a different headspace that you have to be in and it's a different time continuum and all that kind of stuff. So um I've given myself a hard time about not doing enough of it. <laughs> I think that's probably always gonna be something I do. Maybe not, I don't know. But um um so that's kind of I mean it's still there but it's somewhat dormant at the moment, even though I try and do projects every so often. So my creative energy now is in music, as you've just um, mentioned, and that's um, – so I've, we've, I've got a band called Kinaki. Kinaki is um, literally translated as relish, or um, we like to say it's the extra goodness in life. It's that little bit of extra something that you need to make everything taste sweet, um, whether it's tomato sauce on your sausages or jam on your toast or cream on your pudding or, um, you know, it's it's all those little bits of extra goodness. Um, in, a, in a marae context, when a man 
stands in a formal forfeiting um, to stand and speak on behalf of the people. Um, we, the woman and the rest of the people, stand up afterwards to support his um, his speech with a song, and we also call that kinaki as well. Mm. So it's got lots of really nice um, multiple meanings to it. Um, but in thinking about that, then it's, you know, for us as the members, it's the extra goodness in our lives. And then it's also when we get to perform to live audiences, it's, it's we're just bringing the goodness. So um, definitely words of positivity and infused with um, political underpinnings and cultural statements and um, just, yeah, just being, being Māori and being, living it, mm. um, living it, loving it and... So we've got these six of us. Uh, we've got um, drums, bass, and guitar. Um, and the boys are on the back line. Um, so we've got two cousins, Dan, Nathan, and Amon, Nathan from Hokianga up in the far north. So they're on, on the drums and guitar. And then our bro Ari bass um, is from uh, is our bass player. And then we've got the three ladies on the front. So um, three vocalists, three female vocalists, nice. which is a beautiful thing. Um, it's always amazes me or doesn't surprise me anymore how few wahine there are in the music realm. And um, especially as an MC, I find, you know, there's always a wall of guys to get through when you want to get up to the mic. So, and that can be really scary. <laughs> really how, do you, how do you deal with that? What's your, um, what's your process of dealing with that intimidation? Um, I don't know. I still feel intimidated. How <laughs> many years later? Um, you just guess, rocked the mic. That's how. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess um, I, um, being a being a wahine, um, people want to hear you because it's something different. And so often there's you know there's a lot of encouragement. Just get on the mic. Come on, come have a jam. And so that's really helpful for me is when people are invitational and encouraging because it, it is it's a scary space and 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 I always think too like um as a female as soon as you pick up a mic or as anybody as soon as you pick up a mic all eyes are on you so you've got to be on your game straight away mm-hmm. there's no like I'm warming into this I'm just gonna sort of hide in the background for a minute you've got to be on but your game's got to be on as soon as you kind of get that mic in your hand and I think particularly as female people are watching to um because they appreciate a, a feminine flow but also oh yeah what's this girl got to offer you know so there's there's a lot of that kind of um um just vulnerability you know there's a lot of vulnerability in picking up a microphone and um but the beautiful thing of jamming with kinaki we've been going for over two years now and we pretty much have regular weekly practices and so you become really fluent in, 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 you know, like your training, basically. So you're, um, my game's much more on than it would have been two years ago. And, um, yeah, so, but that's a different experience too because Kinaki is very much about us writing songs as a collective and mm. creating music as a collective. And it's a very organic process, whereas um, as an MC on my own, it's must be me and I pick up a mic, then it's more about me um tapping into freestyling and being able to um, just drop drop flows off off the top of the dome and all that kind of stuff, which is, I love that. When 
did you first start doing music and emceeing? Um, I mean, I guess, um, you know, I think Nina Cherry is one of the first female MCs that um, influenced me and uh, I bought her tape when I was, I don't know, 12, I think, 12, 13-ish, 13, 14, and, um, you know, rewind, write down the rhymes, rewind, play, rewind, play, and sort of just starting to learn raps like that. And um, there's all sorts of those songs from that period of time from the 90s that, you you know, are still... As soon as they come on, I know all the words. That's <laughs> hilarious. Um, I think I wrote my first um, song when I was about 17, 18. Um, that was a full full song. And it's funny because it's always been something that I've done because I love to do it, but I haven't necessarily got it to the point of completion and record and release, which is, and it's that thing of, you know, enjoying the process and what is the, where's the important part for you is it, is it producing something to give to other people or is it going through the process and I mean there's I've written lots and lots of songs and I've draft recorded lots of them but haven't necessarily released them and sometimes I wish I had and and I still aspire to do so and it's just it'll be interesting to see how that sort of pans out and I think that's the beauty of Kinaki is that it's not all on me mm. it's there's six of us there's six of us involved in the process and so we're there to support and check each other in that process so um it's a very different experience um but uh oh i'll tell you a story um <laughs> first time that i freestyled oh. <laughs> and, uh, it was pretty exciting <laughs> <laughs> so um we went to go see curtis blow he came to aotearoa oh, nice. you know, and it was quite a small gig and we um it was just like a riser kind of stage he wasn't up on a big stage so we you know i felt like we're right next to him, and this guy's there, and he's going, Arrgh! you know, I can't do the noise properly. <laughs> <laughs> but you know that sound that he makes? It's uh-huh. like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so he's rapping, and, and I'm standing there, and, you know, and then he's like, yo, are there any MCs in the house? And I was like, my heart's beating, and I kind of, you know, and I was just dancing, and then he comes up, and he stands right in front of me, and goes, yo, a female rapper? And I was like, how does he know what <laughs> my sister was behind me pointing down at me over here over here over here I had no idea she was doing it and so I just was out of the blue that kind of looks at me and goes you know a female rapper I was like oh hell yeah okay then <laughs> I got off on stage and I was like shitting myself clearly and um <laughs> these five guys and he kind of lined us all up against the wall at the back and um, called each one up one by one, saved me for last. And I was like, okay, got more and more nervous as the time got closer and closer. And then he gave me the mic and I um, I sort of started to spit a verse that I've written. And um, I got kind of three lines in and I totally just fumbled over my words and I was like, oh, shame. Uh, and then I went, hold, okay, hold up, start again. And then I just kind of let it flow. And all of a sudden I was freestyling and I was spitting these rhymes. And I was like, wow, you know, just didn't know where it came from. And he's kind of watching me like, what? <laughs> this girl's on. And, and um, yeah, so that was kind of the first time that I spat like a real true 
um, freestyle straight from the top of the dome, no anything beforehand. And it was just such an amazing experience. And, and I think that that feeling is something that you tap into when you're, when you're spitting rhymes and, you, and it's you, you're kind of channeling conversation. And I always imagine the words kind of out in front of me and I'm racing to keep up with them and keep up with the, with the thoughts. And so that's when people ask me, how do you freestyle? I'm like, well, that's kind of how I explain it. I'm not quite sure how it happens, but that's, that's kind of what I visualize in my head. And yeah, so it was a pretty awesome experience. <laughs> That's that's a good first freestyle. <laughs> Most people are like in their garage with their cousins. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd I'd written and written lots of rhymes and I'd rapped with people, done all that kind of stuff too. Like, you know, pure, that pure Little lyric drips softly from my lips, the sweet syrupy sister flows. The impression that I get is that you and I have met some other time before. We gotta take this opportunity to capture personalities. Ain't no other time and no other place. It's a miracle on the horizon. See, we are free to fight off fighting battles with our rhymes, silhouette shadows, the vocal flows in the rows. And I'm counting down generations through the notches on my skin. See, we are free to fight off fighting battles with our rhymes, silhouette shadows, the vocal flows in the rows. And I'm counting down generations through the notches on my skin. In my rhymes, it's a vocal revolution on a ride down the river in my skanksaline. What kind of um, inspiration or space can you um, tap into to give to other young indigenous people to keep up with their process, to not lose faith, um, to be stay inspired? Um, do you have any like stories or or ideas on on that how to share that with people? One thing I think about is um, I'm just a stitch in time. Mm. So if you know, in the grand scheme of things, particularly as Indigenous people, we we're really aware of our ancestral connections in our environment and um, this much bigger picture than what's in our immediate day-to-day and so it's really easy to get caught up in the day-to-day but actually when you take a minute to um, reflect and reflect and project I guess um, you see that you're just a a stitch in time and um, you know you're if you if you drop yourself in a space you can create ripple effects and Mm. so um, just being conscious, conscious of yourself and your actions um, is something for me uh, that I try and do. And maybe that tends to turn into self-criticism sometimes because you're overthinking things. But, um, yeah, there's a big picture out there and there's things to aspire to and um, to keep those in your, in your frame of reality means that you're achieving things and I think that that's something that came you know with working with all of the um, amazing quote collections that I've had access to is seeing um, just the superb work of what's what is achievable Um, and if I hadn't had that direct contact and access to those taonga then I wouldn't have that to aspire to 
Mm. So it's not just people that create aspiration, it's it's works of art and it's the skill that you can recognise in other people's practices. And um, whenever I see something that amazes me or inspires me or blows me away, I'm like, how does how was that made? You know, <laughs> you want to you want to work it out, and you want to figure it out, and um, so being inquisitive and and um, trying to figure things out for me is something that um, inspires me, and I think that that's you know even when I'm making stuff because now that I've had um, traditional training, I like to innovate that. So that that image of um, precious wearing the kutsa garment um, is you know that's the fenu or the strands that I've woven with go from the bottom of the garment right up to the top. So it's got three different weaves in one garment. And wow. um, so, and that's through me exploring and innovating. So um, particularly with Indigenous art practice, I think it's really important to have a traditional foundation and then and understanding that language and then you can innovate from there. And um yeah, and I think some of the, you know, what I love is when artists are, uh, they apply that, like that, they apply that tra- traditional understanding, but in a real context. Mm. And we, you know, we can be grounded in tradition, but we don't live in the 1800s anymore. We live in 2000 and whatever it is, 2014. And we have all these multiple influences and um, tools and materials at our fingertips. And so um, accessing those and using them is not selling out on our culture and it's not diluting our culture, it's actually enhancing the way that we're able to express things. So, yeah. How do you how do you remember that? Like, I, I don't know, we deal with stereotypes so much, you know, today. How do you separate, like like using your tradition and like how do you combat other people who aren't Maori using your tradition and feel okay with that? Yeah, I mean, that's an interest. (laughs) I I think surrounding myself with like-minded people is really important. Um, That, you know, the, the communities that we create and that are drawn to us are um, part of that reaffirmation that you're on the right track. Um, if you're surrounded by like-minded people that are thinking in the same kind of way, then you're able to wānanga um, or, you know, dig deep into the learning and understanding of, of, of your cultural space. And uh, appropriation, I mean, in this, in this internet age, how, how do we combat it? You know, it's like it's... Um, I guess where do you want to where do you focus your energy? Do you focus your energy in trying to stop people from doing things, or do you focus your energy in investing time into doing things properly um, and doing things with truth? And and for me, I'd rather be in that space where I'm um, generating energy that reverberates out and does positive things, than trying to focus all my energy out on battling other people from doing doing things that are inappropriate Um, and then hopefully I mean just through conversation when you meet somebody and you challenge them on their way of doing things and you get them to understand things differently I think that that's you know person to person scenario is the best 
way of affecting change. Mm. What do you, um, this is like a weird question, but I really enjoy asking it. What do you (laughs) measure success by? And do you, where do you see yourself in the future? And do you feel like you're being successful? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, I I just, I I know that I'm successful. when I look back at what I've done and, and, you know, conversations like this, I'm like, shit, I've done heaps of stuff, (laughs) heaps of cool stuff. And, and I, um, and I know that I'm successful by other people's response to things that I do, um, telling me that, um, I don't always believe it myself. (laughs) And I think that's one of the biggest battles as, you know, I think I said it earlier as a creative and, as a woman and all of those kinds of things, you kind of really self-critique and self-analyze all the time. And um, um, just because I'm in my head, I'm never doing enough. And what I'm trying to do at the moment is actually just acknowledge all that I'm doing rather than what I'm not doing, (laughs) (laughs) which is an interesting shift to go into. But, um, you know, like, doing some cool shit and um and there's lots of people that I'm doing cool stuff with that are um involved in and we're involved in each other's journey and that's that's um that's success to me you know when when people are vibing off what you're doing and there's there's a community of people that are creating movement um that's success it's not a you know it's not about financial gain or material success or anything. Like I'm, I guess having my job at the moment, I'm the most financially successful that I've been in my life. But um, but I'm time and energy poor now, so I don't have that time and energy to invest into being the artist that I am, and that's a real struggle for me. Um, mm. But it's where I'm at right now, and I'm. And I'm thankful for this opportunity, and I know that it's not forever. <laughs> is that um, how you're? Is that how you're balancing it? Um, just keeping that in your mind that it's not forever. Yeah, and it'll be easy to get caught up in. I mean, I've got an amazing job. You know, don't get me wrong, I love my job, and um, but it's but there's more out there that I need to do. Must be me. He's got a whole lot more stuff to do out there <laughs> in the world, and um, you know, you get itchy feet and. Um, uh, you know, have desires to do other things in other places and return back up to the far north and share what I've learned with other people in that community so that they can benefit and reinvest back into my culture because I know that a lot of um, the benefits that I've received in my life are because I've been able to tap into my Māori culture and so um, that reinvestment back into where I come from is really important for me and um, I'm always aware of it. And um, doing it in urban space is, is cool, but it's not a direct feed back into Ngāi you know, and that's something that I need to strengthen and reconnect and, and do that and can only do that by being on the land and in that, in that place. And not there yet. I'll get there. And, um, <laughs> maybe it's babies that'll take me back or <laughs> who knows. Um, yeah.
like if you had a story or um, something that you wanted to tell the world, you know, this podcast can potentially go everywhere. You know, it's on iTunes, so can reach the world. What no do you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure, but um, yeah. think long and hard if you need to. But what? I don't know what seeds of of inspiration or change or what story somebody told you once that's kept you going, something that you wanted to put out into the universe. You know, I actually thought um, I'd like to read one of my poems. Oh, I would love and that. And now my time. Yeah. Um, and it's called, um, it's for, from a song that we do called Waka in the Sky. So Waka is our canoes and we, we talk about, you know, traversing through space and time. But that aside, um, I was reading this poem last night and I thought, oh, yeah, I'd like to share that because it kind of talks about who I am and where I'm from and different spaces that I come from. So, mm. yeah. Where I'm from, migration follows the path of birds and winds and currents and stars in the northeast of the far north of the southwest of the Pacific, Aotearoa to be specific. Where I'm from, language is transmitted in the throats of birds and the salty air smells like karmica flowers. Where I'm from, navigators discovered the land of my ancestors. Our lands are islands where migration and cross-pollination are interwoven into the fabric of our nation. Where I'm from, Whakapapa tells me stories of the times of my ancestors and brings them into present-day reality through the recitation of names, Landscapes are spoken, premonitions articulated, and birthplaces inherited. Where I'm from, I step, step by step, in the footsteps of two matakahina. Ruya, ruya, tahia, tahia. Fidia, fidia, opia, opia. Where I'm from, the city streets provide beats for my thoughts, and landscapes are reflected in the curves of my hips. Where I'm from, our hip-hop community lives in the heartbeat, heartbeats. The earth breathes beneath our feet as we retreat to retrieve tactics for defense to redress oppression through lyrical expression. Where I'm from, bloodlines from past lives intertwine to create my life with sparkles in my eyes like a pinetita on a glimpse of the dawning of a new day. Where I'm from. to thank you for the opportunity for the work that you're doing in um, creating these connections around the globe for us to share stories and um, and share a, an indigenous space in the cyber world that we live in um, I think you know just um, the initial sharing that this blog is going to come and the amount of people from around the world that have kind of already connected in before we've even shared the interview is um real tribute to you and what you're aspiring to achieve. So thank you for doing that and connecting me in. I feel really um, <laughs> privileged to be part of it. Yeah. 
it's it's beautiful to meet people around the world and know that you've known them forever and will know them forever. And I think that you and I were like that when we first met. We wrote a song together, <laughs> yeah, uh, straight away like that. And um, yeah, just those connections around the world. Um, actually, there is a a, a corridor that um, Mark Gonzalez, who's um, an indigenous healer. And um, I was privileged to attend uh, a conference in Wisconsin last year called Hip Hop in the Heartland. And Mark Gonzalez was there. He's one of the Deaf Jam poets. And he is, um, like I said, he does um, healing with Indigenous communities through storytelling. Mm. And he's a hugely inspirational person. And he was talking about this idea of, um, you know, in traditional Indigenous societies, we have our small Pano or um, tribal groups, and we're there um, as circles to um, check ourselves and to keep ourselves in line with what is true and, and the right way to go about things. And particularly with young people, you know, the elders are there in direct contact with the young people. But through the process of um, colonization and um, uh, urbanization and all of those kinds of things, and now communities becoming um, dislocated and disparate is that um, those circles become fractured mm. and but now um, as indigenous peoples who and particularly artists you know we, we hold on to culture and we retell culture through our practice um, but you know this we now have different our circles are on different scales, so these circles exist around the globe now, and um, it's that that family network stuff that I was talking about earlier as well. You know that now it's not about our immediate family being there to support and critique each other. It's actually about the bigger, wider circles that that are global now, and um, we're all part of that network. And I'm sure people that are tuning into these podcasts are consciously part of that network as well. And so we're there to connect and support and um, and protect Papa Tuanuku, you know, protect our Earth Mother and, and all of our environment. Never forget the stories and the medicines. Never forget the freedom fighters of my land. Never forget Never forget, no, 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 we never forget. Spiritually connected, guided and protected. The purpose and the path, the questions that we ask, all the blessings that we have. Each and every day when we pray, listen to the winds, what they say. They love you, guide you, protect you, give you all that they can. It's all in the plan for the journey, constantly learning. Universe is turning, no, no, I never forget. Ancestral remedies planted in the flames of yesterday The medicines uplifted the stories to throw the pain away Of colonization that swept through our land and sea We hold on to our past to guide us forward to unity Medicine so pure, the people's valiant cure Safeguarding our cultural identity, our mana for the future It's time to eradicate, uplifting our people to emancipate No bet, it's been said, our people never forget Never forget the stories and the medicines Never forget the freedom fighters of the land Never forget the bloodshed by our ancestors Never forget the 
Bloodshed of yesterday paid the price, don't deceive. Innovation restores the revival to rearrange. Radical awakening the post, it's restoration of change. You see me standing in the strength of my tupuna, my Modi flag. I wanna fly for you. I got the red blood flowing in my veins. The black of my iris, the white of my bones, my culture ingrained deep like the trenches carved into the land. Making a stand, silhouettes out on the horizon. Rise up against the presser man who tried to suppress memories of the bloodshed. But no, we'll never forget. Never forget the stories and the medicines. Never forget the freedom fighters of the land. Never forget the bloodshed by our ancestors. Never forget. No, no, no. We never forget. Never forget the stories and the medicines. Never forget the freedom fighters of our land. Never forget. Bloodshed by ancestors never forget. No, 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 we never forget. Stories in the medicines. Freedom fighters of our land. The bloodshed by our ancestors. Never forget. 